Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. Before we get into today's episode, if you don't already know, we've launched Intelligence Squared Premium. It's an exciting new way to take your Intelligence Squared experience to the next level so you can make the most informed decisions about the issues that matter in the company of the world's greatest minds and speakers. Crucially, it lets us produce even more amazing podcasts for you, as well as running some more live events and big debates. For just $4.99 a month, you'll get ad-free listening, one early episode a week, two bonus episodes per month, think especially sit down with big thinkers like Daniel Kahneman, a 25% discount on Intelligence Square Plus, our new streaming service which allows you to ask questions to all speakers, a 15% discount and priority access to live in-person events, and our new premium monthly newsletter which includes write-ups from events, a section to see what subscribers are saying about the ideas and speakers we feature in the events and podcasts, and a curated list of the most impactful articles our team has come across in the past month. And everything I just mentioned is available for just $4.99 a month. This is now available on all podcast players, including Spotify. So please sign up now at iq2premium.supercast.com. That's iq, the numeral two, premium.supercast.com, or see the link in the description. Thank you for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Today, a literary exploration of the American Civil War. Two leading authors, Sarah Churchwell and Karen Joy Fowler, join us to discuss how stories and national myths from the past can foreshadow and shed light on the controversies in American politics today. I'm delighted to introduce Sarah Churchwell, who's the Professor of American Literature and Chair of Public Understanding of the Humanities at the University of London. She's the author of many books, including Behold America, A History of America First and the American Dream, and her new book, which is The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells. We also have Karen Joy Fowler, who is the New York Times bestselling author of six novels, including We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, which won the 2014 Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction and was shortlisted for the 2014 Man Booker Prize. Her latest novel is Booth, which is based around the family of John Wilkes Booth. Now, to get underway, I wonder, Sarah, if we could start with you first. Um, We're living through a moment when we've seen Roe v. Wade recently overturned by the Supreme Court, uh, reversing the federally guaranteed constitutional right to abortion. We're also trying to understand the complicity of President Trump in January 6 attacks. Now, how big of a moment do you think what we're living through now is for the story of the United States? Oh, I, I think it's absolutely one of the great landmark moments in our in our history. And I don't think there's any question about that at all. There are a lot of people pointing out that the Dobbs ruling, which is the one that overturned uh, Roe v. Wade, the the ways in which it um, it resembles in, in really frightening ways, the Dred Scott decision of 1857, which was one of the proximate causes of the American Civil War, the degree to which the bounty hunter laws, which as some of the people in the audience will know, states like Texas and Idaho have said that they're going to put bounties on the head of women who leave states in search of um, abortions in other states. So incentivizing um, bounties and creating conflict between states. There's going to be legal chaos. There's going to be absolute mayhem as people try to figure out, are they being extradited? What are your legal rights from one state to another? And that replicates the situation under the fugitive slave law, which again was one of the causes of the American Civil War. And then when we look at the insurrection, it leaves Watergate in the shade. The hearings are showing that a sitting president 
was leading an armed insurrection against the United States. So it doesn't get any bigger than that. And to me, one of the things that's remarkable about the moment that we're living in is that um, the ways that that our country is so partisan and, and so politicized means that people are downplaying the seriousness of the moment that we're living in. And, um, and, and, and I think it's hard sometimes to come to grips with that, but we really have to recognize this is, you know, an epochal moment and we have to try to grasp it and, and make sense of it and and understand its consequences. And Karen, if I could put a, the same question to you, but also add, you know, I read a previous interview in which you said that you, you paused writing uh, the book Booth when Trump was elected and only restarted writing when you saw sort of historical through lines back to the Civil War that are relevant to now. I wonder if you could just expand on that a little bit and tell us what do you see that was occurring in the Civil War, which has something to tell us about the current moment. Yes, absolutely. Um, your recollection is correct that um, that I started this book uh, and then when Trump was elected, I really went through a long, dark period. I was very surprised by the election of Trump. I remain surprised by the election of Trump. But um, uh, my my agent told me that at that same time, she had seven clients abandon the books that they were in the middle of, because they just no longer seemed pertinent to to what was happening. And and I put myself in that category as well until, as you said, I I came to a, a much slower recognition than I should have that in in the words of Ursula K. Le Guin, the election of Trump was just the most recent battle in the Civil War. She said the Trump voters knew this and we did not. And this is one of the things that enabled them to win. And when I began to think of, as you said, of the through line from the Civil War to Trump, um, the more closely I looked at it, the more brightly lit that through line became. And I realized that um, in my own historical way, I was talking about current events. Uh, One of the things that I think is so consistent with the Civil War period is a kind of, I mean, we talk about partisanship, but we have reached a point where people who hold a a different political view are considered enemies now. So, you know, we have a a party where a number of people say they, you know, they would rather deal with Russia than with the Democrats. And so the, the sense that not only are we divided, but we are furiously divided that among our fellow citizens, we see our closest and most dangerous enemies seems to me, obviously, something that was a, a hallmark of the Civil War uh, and and became more muted, I think, in many of the years that followed, but it's in full view now. Hmm. Well, well, let's look a bit more closely at those through lines now. Sarah, your book, The Wrath to Come, centers on Gone with the Wind uh, as a sort of emblem of the way in which myths about the Civil War and America live on. Give us a sense of why Gone with the Wind is so central to understanding myths about America uh, 
and the civil war period today? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there are a couple of answers to that. I mean, one is, and I should say, I want to be clear, because a couple of people have asked me, like, am I saying that that Gone with the Wind caused, you know, Trumpism or something? And obviously, I hope it's clear that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that it captures this very complicated history that is not just a series of facts, but then is which is already complicated. I mean, the facts are complicated enough. Um but then a series of myths developed around those facts, which are also really complicated. And so to try to capture all of that and to understand how this kind of tangle of, of, of facts and lies and myths and half truths and distortions and all of this stuff, how it all kind of, how all of that got us where we are. And so what I'm saying is that Gone with the Wind is actually a relatively efficient way of understanding it because Gone with the Wind captured so much of it, although I think it did that pretty inadvertently. But the other reason why I think that Gone with the Wind is is the right story or good story in which to to, um, approach these questions is because it's so phenomenally popular and it remains so phenomenally popular. So, you know, it still shifts 300,000 copies a year, which, you know, numbers that pretty much almost all authors would envy, right? Um, and, um, and the film, when adjusted for inflation, is still the most successful film of all time. And the famous, uh, fi- not quite final quote, but Rhett Butler's final quote from it, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, is still the most famous movie quote of all time. Right. So it's its influence is undeniable. And the way in which you know anything that's that phenomenally popular is telling people something they want to hear. And it's telling them something that um, that that resonates with them. And in this case, it's telling a story about the American Civil War that says that slavery wasn't really that bad. And one of the things I say in the book is like, well, then you might ask yourself, well, then why did we have to fight a civil war over it if it was all OK anyway? <laughs> like, you know, so it's getting at the at the desire of America it's it's a, of our and I include myself in this very much. Um, like Karen, I feel that I came to a lot of these realizations quite late. That the degree to which we want to maintain our own inno- our own innocence is so profound that we decided that even our version of slavery was innocent, and that the the need to be exceptionalist was so profound that even our version of slavery was an exception and everything was kind of fine. And that's really the story that Gone with the Wind tells. It's a it's a deeply consoling fiction that says that nobody did anything really very bad and we can all just move on. Can I respond to some of that, Connor? Um, Absolutely. Go ahead. One of the things I've really been thinking about um, in the aftermath of reading your book, Sarah, is sort of the purpose of history. And and that, you know, that too is uh, an argument that is very current and very live in the U.S. right now. Do we want to teach an accurate version of history? Or do we want to see history as instrumental in some way in creating patriotism, in creating the the kind of citizens that we want? Um, uh, And, you know, my my book starts with a quote from Frederick Douglass that America... um, is is false to the past, is false to the present, and plans to be false to the future. And and we are seeing people actually, um, you know, support that decision. Here, we don't we don't want to teach that slavery is uh, is something to be ashamed of because then people might feel ashamed. And um, so it's uh, and because uh, you know because I wrote a historical novel, this sort of question of 
where the truth is, where I might find the truth, how, how reliable I can feel about the sources that I have. You know, all of these questions have just been um, swirling in my head and reading your, no- your, your nonfiction book um, really brought them to the surface again. Because I think, you know, there was a purpose to that lost cause myth which was to allow the South to rejoin the country that they had fought and many of them died in order to leave. And that this too is a pattern I see throughout our history, this sort of choice of a kind of threadbare unity over an actual reckoning with what has happened. And again, we are seeing this in the in everything around the January 6th investigations, is someone going to be held responsible? Or are we going to once again, as we always do, choose to move on uh, with uh, um, defense that to do otherwise would be too, um, you know, would cause too much disunity? It would be divisive, right? Um, Exactly, exactly. And, and, and as you know, I mean, that's that, that what you just described there is very much kind of um, the story that I'm telling in this book. I think, I think I would say a couple of things about that. I think that one is that I absolutely agree. And, and as you know, and talk about the fact that um, that last, as you say, the lost cosmos had a purpose. And that purpose was absolutely to reunite the country. But it also meant its other purpose was to pull out from underneath um, the country the, 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 the embryonic foundations of a true multiracial democracy. And what it did was reinstate white supremacism and all the old hierarchies of the antebellum era in as near a replica of slavery as they could. It was basically, you know, slavery in all but name. So the, the country, as historians have shown, and I'm just working with other, his, you know, um, historians research here, but they've shown very, very clearly that the, and, and Du Bois, um, the great historian W.E.B. Du Bois, who wrote his great African American revisionist account of history in 1935, Black Reconstruction in America. He was really the first one to point that out to say that white America reunited after the Civil War around the cause of white supremacism. But, the reason why I think the question of what we do with history or how we understand our history is such a live one, um, in part, is because it's not an academic question. I say this as an academic, right? But it's not an academic question because, uh, and as somebody who, you know, an American who lives in London, I'm constantly being asked to explain to people what, and I actually, this is how I open my book, right? What the hell is going on? Like, what is happening to America? And how is it just crumbling around us? And one of my understandings of history is the problem is you can deny history as much as you want, but things that happen in the past have consequences now, regardless of whether you know what they were. You know, you, you could be completely oblivious to what happened in the past, but those consequences roll on. And that's the problem is that we're now not only divided, but bewildered because we have been in denial for so long that we, as you say, we don't want to know the truth, but the, but facts are happening. It's like COVID denial or climate change denial, any other denial of reality, you know, the world is still heating up, whether you think it is or not. And the floods are coming, whether you think they are or not, you know, and COVID is going to kill you, whether you think that, you know, the vaccines are implanting you with 5G, you know, devices or whatever it is. So there, there are these intractable realities and history is one of them. Historical and political and legal consequences are one of them. And at least if we understand our history, we understand why we're looking at some of the messes that we're looking at. And obviously you and I 
are both um, very clearly seeing those, those through lines, as you call them, and seeing, that, as you say, that this is an ongoing civil war. And if we understand that, we start to understand our position in that history. And maybe we can start to, to have a more proactive and more constructive relationship to our own political time if we understand how we got here. Because if we don't understand that, we, we can't even begin seems to me. And I think it's important that we actually discuss what some of those realities are and how myths try and mask what the future is. But just before we move on, Sarah, could you just, for anyone watching who doesn't know what the lost cause myth is, can you give us a quick understanding of what the lost cause myth is? Okay. Well, so what I was going to say is, so for anybody who does know Gone with the Wind, the lost cause is basically Gone with the Wind. So it's the it's the romantic, um, mythical, sentimental, nostalgic view that the um, plantation slavery was a gentle era; that it was full of, um, as the as the famous prologue says in *Gone with the Wind*, that it was uh, um, that it was full of knights and fair ladies, and that they and that they were and everybody was gentle and happy, and it was this agrarian pastoral idyll, this kind of lost paradise, and that it was all ruined by the North, who were basically spiteful and came in to ruin everything just because they wanted to like get their hands on the money, um, as if as I said in the book, as if slavery was you know. Um, uh, a charitable institution. I mean, it was economically motivated. Um, and so this, but this lie that it was all very beautiful and wonderful and, um, and there was nothing wrong with it. And so the, the dresses and the, and the gallantry and the supposed chivalry and all of that stuff, which is nonsense. I mean, it's nonsense from start to finish. And it was, you know, it's, it's totally disproven by the most superficial knowledge of the realities of plantation slavery. Um, but also of knowing that these people were farmers. They were hacking houses out of the wilderness. They weren't living in European-style colonial mansions, by and large. And there were, you know, a few scattered around the South. But um, and so the the you know the the history is much less romantic. It was all it was a rougher and cruder and harsher time, even for the enslavers, um, let alone for the enslaved. So um, so that's the, that's the myth and it's that familiar idea, but that most people now realize is, um, you know, that part of it they realize is, is silly, but then people still don't stop and question phrases like, you know, an ideal slave plantation. Like we have this idealized picture of a slave plantation. And as I say in the book, that's analogous to talking about an idealized picture of concentration camps. You know, you're talking about atrocities and talking about them in terms of human ideals. And that's the part that I that I think that we still don't do the math. Like we know it's not true, but we don't actually sit down and think about the cliches and what they're masking. I would just add to that that I think part of the lost cause mythology is that um, the um, army of the South was full of gallant, heroic um, soldiers fighting, uh, you know, a, a sort of doomed but beautifully but, but sacrificial noble. action yeah. against the larger numbers and the greater assets of the North, uh, you know, that um, that they were ground into submission, but that there was something noble about the effort. And, you know, this is very clear even today as you travel through parts of the South where people will tell you that if you mention the Civil War, they will tell you that it was the war of Northern aggression. And Karen, one theme which 
is apparent, I think, in your book, is this idea that the slaves are omnipresent, but also sort of invisible to the characters insofar that they're there, but their humanity is invisible into a sense. And I wonder, right now, obviously, there's people who want to mythologize slavery or pretend it was good or didn't happen. But I wonder for the people at the time in the Civil War, how they viewed slavery? Was it just something which was part and parcel of daily life? Or was there some sort of inner conflict about the morality of it, even in the South? I, uh, you know, my book, I think, demonstrates a sort of generational difference just because of the um, the facts of the Booth family, which is that um, the grandfather, Richard Booth, and the two parents, Junius and Marianne, um, all grew up in England. And so when they came to America and found themselves um, in this system, they were shocked, uh, particularly the grandfather, you know, that they saw it as um, as shocking. Uh, but their children who grew up in the midst of it uh, um, were much less aware of it as a shocking um, sort of um, uh, material fact of, of their lives. So um, I I think that they, all three generations, with the exception of John Wilkes himself, they opposed slavery. But, um, but the grandfather opposed it with such vehemence that he participated in um, helping uh, the enslaved escape um, to Philadelphia. And um, the, the next generation, um, opposed it, um, but without real action. And the, the third generation opposed it without really seeming to notice it a lot, even though they grew up um, very entangled with, a, with the whole family whose personal experiences of, of slavery were very complicated, a, a, a family in which some members were enslaved and some members were free and some members had been enslaved but managed to buy their freedom. Um, again, this was a family that the Booths were very close to. So you would think that they would have thought more about all of the permutations of, of the slave system around them. But, um, but the younger generation, at least with the exception of John Wilkes Booth, it was very much an ardent white supremacist um, that they just don't seem to have talked about it very much. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. 
Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. And sir, a question for you. What do you think should be done with texts like Gone with the Wind? Is it that they're outdated? And yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, I, you know, by training, I'm a professor of literature, right? So I come at things from, you know, a belief in the importance of fiction and storytelling and the, and the role of, um, of particularly of novels, um, in our, in our lives and our imaginative inheritance. I'm not in the business of banning books. I'm not in the business of censoring books. I'm certainly not in the business of burning books or anything like that. So, um, I, you know, my own kind of, quixotic, um, sentimental idea is that it would be great if people could approach uh, a book like Gone with the Wind with historical knowledge and understand what it is that they're reading and what it is that it that it can teach us. Um, I, I think that, of course, I want there to be more text. I always want there to be more text. That's all. More books is better as far as I'm concerned. That just makes the world a better place. And more information makes the world a better place. I'm not being frivolous. I think the more perspectives, more voices, all of that is part of this project that we're talking about is that it, it does um, make certainly any of us who, who love um, reading books, particularly when we were growing up, know the ways that it does open up imaginative uh, vistas, not just in, you know, in terms of, I don't know, you know, the world, but in terms of human beings, in terms of understanding that there are people who think differently from you, in terms of understanding that people have different values from you or different struggles from you, all of that stuff. It helps you imaginatively walk a mile in someone else's shoes. It just does. And so, you know, that's always going to be to the good. I think that it's just too easy. It's also unrealistic to think that we can just, um, people talk about, you know, canceling the book. As I say, I don't believe in banning books anyway, but, um, but that ship has sailed. Gone with the Wind is out there. As I said, it's shifting 300,000 copies a year. So trying to say, you know, make it go away to me is part is, is the same kind of denialism that we've been practicing all along. Well, now let's pretend that Gone with the Wind didn't happen as part of our massive project and pretending that there, that there's nothing to look at here and there are no problems. So it's a complex problem, which is why I wrote my book to try to unpack the complexity of that problem. And I, and I recognize that for some people, the easier solution is just to make it go away. Now, of course, there's a there's a gray area that I've excluded there, which is that you can ignore something without banning it or censoring it. You can just say this thing is is outdated and we don't want to have anything to do with it anymore. And I think to be in a world in which Gone with the Wind doesn't shift 300,000 copies a year might not be any might not be a bad thing um, because enough people are not dismantling it in those ways. But until they do, I guess, you know, my hope is that they'll read it alongside my book and maybe start to ask themselves some different questions about it. And other books, there are a lot, there's lots of amazing writing about Gone with the Wind. Well, it is, has itself become part of the history of the country. And it's exactly as, as the big lie around the election, the election has demonstrated just because something is not true does not mean it doesn't have impact. It, it doesn't right. become part of the story. So there are, yeah. I think, you know, there is the, the need to understand lies for what they are, but also the need to acknowledge that they have had an impact on where we are now and how we think. And so, you know, they just, they can't just be a race there. Exactly. And they help shape reality. They make reality um, in all kinds of important ways, as you say, with the big lie and Gone with the Wind has done that. It has, it has shaped um, events that came after it. And so, yeah, we can't just pull it out, you know, neatly excise it from the historical uh, record or the historical events of our country. It's part of the fabric of 20th century American imaginative 
life and we have to understand it. And Karen, through art and historical fiction, are these ways which you can tell truths in an easier way? I, I, I used to say that I didn't believe in nonfiction, um, by which I meant that uh, that our sources for history seemed so unreliable that, you know, a hundred years pass and what has survived and what has not survived um, is is in some ways already a selection process that somebody has has organized um, that we know that our own memories are very inaccurate now. We know that eyewitness accounts are very inaccurate. So, you know, where is the solid ground on which you can stand when you're when you're trying to deal with a historical events. Um, but, you know, this is another change in my 72nd year with uh, uh, Trumpism running wild. Um, it, I, I, you know, we are in such a period of misinformation and conspiracy theories that you know, it now feels to me that saying, as I used to, I don't believe in nonfiction, is just sort of throwing it all up for grabs and suggesting that you know, just pick and choose what um, what what works for you. Um, so I now think that the effort to tell a true historical story is actually a necessary act of radical activism. Um, all the while still believing that um, understanding what is true and what is not when 150 years have passed is a, is a fool's errand in a lot of ways. So I, I sort of simultaneously think it's really, really important to make the effort and that you will fall short in certain ways. And hopefully somebody else will come along and correct what you have, uh, have misunderstood. And, and maybe as, I was saying about the arc of history, maybe the telling of history will swing towards truth over time in some in some important way. But um, yeah, this is you know these are things I think about a lot. I I loved writing my historical novel, and I, the whole time I felt very uncomfortable about the entire project of uh, of historical fiction. Um, you know where where history ends and fiction begins and how much of history is already a fiction as um, Sarah's book so beautifully illustrates. Um, so I don't have easy answers, but um, it's certainly stuff I've been thinking a lot about. And, and, and in the case of Booth, um, by narrowly focusing on a single family for which there was a lot of surviving information, um, but also a lot of surviving mythology. I, I tried to make that a manageable problem. Mm. And Sarah, do you have any thoughts on that question of telling accurate history in a time of partisanship? You know, Gone with the Wind had such a, an impact on telling perhaps a perverse form of mythologies. Do you think things like the arts can play a role in, in moving forward where politics seems ground to a halt? There's other ways that people can uh, push forward accurate forms of history. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I think that, you know, one of the things those of us who who love fiction and and other forms of art will often say about it is that it's is that it's seeking higher truths but it's doing that through different media and it may be through an encounter with historical fact and historical realities as as Karen has done 
so wonderfully in Booth, or it may be through a fully imagined project, speculative fiction or science fiction or, you know, and, and anything kind of in between. And so the, but there are still truths that are being sought. There are still, um, there's still wisdom that is hopefully being shared. There is still, you know, there are still, um, ideas that are running through it. And so, but I think that when we're talking about, I, I mean, um, I, again, I have a similar kind of arc here to, to Karen's in that, um, as I was trained as a, as a literature professor, I was going to write nonfiction about literature, not about history. And, and I was actually one of the, um, I was one of the authors who, uh, who, who stopped writing their book when Trump was elected, because I was writing a book about Henry James. Um, and I ended up writing a book about America first. And now I've written this book, which is also a response to, to where we are. I think a lot of writers have done that because as you say, we just couldn't kind of do what we were doing and have rediscovered the importance of history, as you say, in this era of rampant propaganda, disinformation, conspiracy. How do we try to grasp a truth and to understand that with all of the limits that Karen has just so, you know, eloquently described for us, all of the unreliability of history, which is real, and we have to know that it's real when we approach it. For me, one of the reasons why I brought Gone with the Wind into the story and why I, why I didn't just write a book of straight history but and as I try to explain in in the book, is that I actually think that what gone what a, what a story like Gone with the Wind gives us is for good or ill, it gives us a truth about the emotions. It gives us a truth about the psychology. It gives us a truth about the desire to believe lies. It gives us a truth about how why we want myth making and what it's for. That that merely. Um, uh, putting, not merely, I'm not, I'm not trying to disparage historical projects, but that only putting, uh, um, putting together documentary fact while recognizing its unreliability, its, its partial nature, its fragmentary, you know, all of that stuff, it's provisional, it's contingent, all of the, the ways in which it's problematic, it's still all we got. And so people stitch it together and try to, and try to figure out what happened to the best of their ability. But for me, what that can often do, even with the best historical account, is leave out the emotions and it leaves out the psychologies and it leaves out some of the collective patterns and trends that that incredibly popular works of fiction capture. And so um, so for me, that's one of the things that that fiction does is it restores some of that those questions of moral wisdom. It restores those questions of psychology, collective psychology, individual psychology of desire of how the desire is driving all of this, that, that history can refer to, but not necessarily get inside the head of in, I think the way that fiction can. So that's why I tried to, to bring them together. Can these divisions be overcome? We see states like Georgia, which, you know, uh, people like Stacey Abrams and uh, have done a lot to create change. Do you think America has some sort of fixed divisions or, or can they become overcome? Well, I I don't think that it's, I wouldn't say that it's because of our collective psyche or anything. I think that it is um, part of our collective history. Um, I would say two things. One is I don't see any will to overcome it and uh, not at the moment and, um, and not just on the Republican side, although I think their authoritarian grab is pushing things in the ways that it is. But the fact is, is, is that this is a, we're a very angry country right now and we are all really pissed off at each other. Um, and, and so, you know, as Karen says, like, you know, there's this, there is this feeling of, of with a lot of people like, fine, let's just secede. Like, let's just go our own way. Like, is it worth it? Is it worth all of this, um, all of this chaos and effort and violence and horror and, and injustice and, um, and maybe, yeah, maybe we just secede and go build our own thing. And, um, the, but I, I think the other thing that I that I try to remind people is that the um, and again it's about this kind of audacious project of, 
of the United States is, is that the United States is the size of Europe. You know, and when people are like, oh, I want to compare the United States to England. I'm like, no, compare New York to England. You know, don't compare the United, compare the United States to the continent of Europe, because that is the, the comparison that you should be making. And, and states are the size of, um, you know, of, of individual countries in Europe. I'm always having to tell people in, in Britain that like, so I grew up in Chicago and that, um, you know, Lake Michigan is, I, I had, a, I had a statistic one time. I can't remember what it is now, but it's basically like three times the size of Wales or something. And they think it's like a pond, you know, and I'm like, it's like literally like the size of your, of your island. Okay. Um, so they don't, and your people don't understand the scale of it until you've actually driven across the United States, until you've flown across it, until you've lived in the midst of it and you understand all of that. And the states, hugely vary. They do. And the, there are different cultures and there are different languages and different religions and all uh, everything and food and whatever, you know. And so to try to create a completely united uh, um, polity out of that, um, you know, was maybe always, again, doomed to failure. It was maybe always a fool's errand to try. But we now have this history and, and these structures that we've inherited. I mean, that's Back to the point about what's going to happen with Roe is that, as Karen says, there are now these federal systems you can't disentangle it that easily. And, and part of the problem is that people talk about it in terms of red states and blue states, but that's in many ways a misnomer. You mentioned Stacey Abrams; she's in Atlanta, in a red state, but the but most of our urban areas are voting uh, for Democrats, and the rural areas are voting for Republicans by and large. Again, you know, something of a generalization, but it's mostly true. So you can't actually pluck out the cities and unless we're going to create like Vatican cities everywhere, like, have, you know, city states scattered around. So it's not it's we can't unravel it um, as easily as all that. So I think that it was always um, a bold experiment and slightly mad to think that you could create this. You know, you I always say that I think I said this in the book that any country that calls itself the United States is protesting too much. Right? We are not united. We are tough. We never have been. Um, can we be? I mean, as Amer I mean, there there are things that hold us together, and as Americans, I think we have to just we have to hold out hope. And, and my position always, ultimately, is that is I'm not is I'm not giving up to these bastards. I'm not surrendering this idea, and I'm not surrendering democracy, and I'm not surrendering my human rights, and I'm not surrendering other people's human rights to this minority of people who want to hang on to power at any literally any cost. They can't have it. They can't have my country that easily, you know. So, so you know, I think we have to stick in for the fight, and but nobody knows the outcome of the fight, and it would be, I think, it's a fool's errand to pretend that that any of us does. But we, ha I think, we have to. We have to fight the battle out and see where it takes us. Well, yeah. <laughs> I say that living in London. You know, Americans are going to be like, oh, excuse me. <laughs> well, that's a lovely, uh, that's a lovely uh, hopeful note to end on. I'd like to give a huge thank you to Sarah and Karen for what was a really, really fascinating event. Quick reminder, if you have not already got copies of their book, do pick up a copy of Boo and The Wrath to Come. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. For more information, go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. Thank you for your support.